Today, I want to talk about the word freedom. Uh, and freedom is one of those words uh, so important to us as Christians, so important to us as Americans, as human beings. Uh, freedom means the ability to choose, the ability to do or say or think uh, whatever you want, the ability to live your life how you see fit. And usually when we see this word, it's a positive that, that we associate it with. We're thinking, yeah, that, that sounds pretty great. But I want to kind of take us through a, a thought exercise here as, as we think about this word freedom. What happens if we are completely free of all guidelines and influences? You know, studies have shown that at a very young age, we prefer freedom, but only up to a certain extent. Uh, one 2006 study that I learned about earlier this week followed children's behavioral patterns when it came to them playing on a playground. And they took two groups of children at two different playgrounds, and they just kind of watched how they would behave. And the first group, they gave them limitless freedom. Uh, they, they were on this, this playground surrounded by fields and trees to go and do whatever they wanted. Uh, and, and interestingly, they found that those children stayed pretty clumped up together in the center on the playground where it was safest. The other group of children, they put a fence around the playground. So they had the freedom to explore, but only up to a certain extent. And that group of children, despite having this barrier all around them, dispersed and explored more than the group that didn't have the fence. The quote at the end of the study said, the overwhelming conclusion was that with a given limitation, children felt safer to explore a playground. Without a fence, the children were not able to see a given boundary or limit and thus were more reluctant to leave the caregiver. To put this another way, we're not so good at making the best use of our freedom. Now, if you're anything like me, it's easy to feel pretty out of control when things are going wrong in your life. When I'm without work, when I have no idea where my life is headed, when, when I don't know what I'm going to be doing with the next few years of my life, even the next few months, I'm scared out of my mind, and I feel out of control and terrified. Even worse is when I feel like my own actions are beyond my control. Uh, when struggling with porn, it, it felt like I was completely at the mercy of this other entity. Uh, when struggling with depression, it felt like every day was taken away from me. And as I struggle to right the ship and get back on track, it just makes things worse. The more you try, the more you sink your hands around this issue and try to hold on and control, the faster you sink, like quicksand. And for the most part, this was all of my own design. This was how I had chosen to use my freedom. Small choices that I thought I was in control of day by day had taken me down this path, slowly edging me further and further along this path that I did not want to be on. Now I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought about where you would be if you were suddenly given everything that you wanted? Think about that for just a minute. What are the things that you want right now? Maybe it's a job or a new job or a better job. Maybe it's more money, more time. Maybe it's health uh, for yourself or for a loved one. Uh, children, friends, a bigger house, a new car. Truly think about what if right this second you were given everything 
that is in your head that you want right now. How long do you think it would take before you started wanting something else? See, it's absolutely fascinating to me how ignorant we can be about what we really want. And I want to give you an extreme example of what this looks like. In 1960, uh, the TV show The Twilight Zone filmed an episode called A Nice Place to Visit. It followed the the story of a man named Rocky. Uh, Rocky had not lived the best life, and, and he was at the end of his rope looking for some money, and so he held up a pawn shop. He was trying to rob them. The robbery went wrong, and he ended up getting shot and killed by police. And he was delighted when he woke up in heaven. He's surrounded by everything that he has ever wanted in life. He has this beautiful high-rise apartment at the very top of the building. He's surrounded by these indulgent foods that he can have as much of as he wants. There's a dresser that is literally filled with money and cash as much as he wants. He goes downstairs. There's a casino where he can gamble. He's surrounded by beautiful women. He can drink as much as he wants. He has drugs. Everything he ever wanted and chased in his life is now given to him. And a couple of months go by, and shockingly, he's miserable. He's absolutely sick and tired of this. He's so bored with getting everything that he wants at a moment's notice. And he starts to wonder if maybe some kind of mistake was made. And so he has this conversation. Let's watch this together. That, well, just between you and me, Fats, I don't think I belong here. I don't think I fit in. Oh, nonsense. Of course you do. Oh, no, I mean it. I mean it. It's just somebody must have goofed. If I got to stay here another day, I'm going to go nuts. Look, look, I don't belong in heaven, see? I want to go to the other place. Heaven? <laughs> Whatever gave you the idea you were in heaven, Mr. Valentine? This is the other place. everything he's ever wanted and he's going to have to live with it for eternity in the twilight zone they just don't make tv like that anymore did you catch the line at the end he has everything he's ever wanted and now he's going to have to live with that for eternity that hits you pretty hard doesn't it It's funny how the freedom to chase whatever we want can start to feel a lot like a locked door. And what we thought could be heaven turns out to be a hell of our own design. The Bible uses pretty clear-cut terms to describe this phenomenon, and the most common word that it uses is actually slavery. The New Testament authors would say that this type of behavior that we like to call freedom is a result of our enslavement to sin. And especially for us in America, our freedom is a big deal. We want to know that we are completely in control of our actions and our thoughts, that we can do and say whatever we like, and we have some say in where we're going in the long term. And to an extent, that's true, but according to the Bible, that's just not the whole story. Because whether we like it or not, we are going to be serving something. 
We are going to be slaves to something. When we are trying to act out of a desire for what we and we alone want, we tend to be locking ourselves further and further inside a glamorized version of hell. This is because the world offers us what I'm going to call phony freedom. It's cheap, it's imitation, it's knockoff, it's the generic brand, it's the hydrox of freedoms. The phony freedom that the enemy offers is the power to choose for yourself exactly what you will be enslaved to. I'm going to say that one more time. The phony freedom that the enemy offers is the power to choose exactly what you will be enslaved to. Right now, you are free to go out and work and make as much money as you possibly can. You are free to make your life all about sex and drugs. You're free to make your life all about getting the nicest things that you possibly can. You're free to compete with the neighbors for status. You're free to chase that promotion. Phony freedoms means having your choice of prisons. And today, we're talking about Luke. And we're going to see how this issue is addressed with a simple meal. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 22. Uh, We're going to be starting in verse 7. If you have your scripture journals with you, we're starting on page 152. Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I want to stop for just a second. To me, that is the center point of this text. I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. Think of the preparation that's gone into this. He knew exactly what was going to happen. So many great preparations had gone into this. I mean, really think about how much work and effort you're putting into the things that you are excited for. Jesus is showing with words and actions that this, this meal, this night, is something he has been starkly looking forward to despite what he knows is coming next. Picking up in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now I want to set the scene for you a little bit. This is what's known as the Last Supper. It's a Thursday night, and Jesus knows he will be hung on a cross tomorrow morning because of the betrayal of one of his close friends that is joining him at this meal. In a sense, this meal serves as a goodbye letter 
to his 12 closest friends. He knows that he's going away. He knows that he's going to suffer. He knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows he's going to be isolated and left and abandoned. So it's fascinating to see how he chooses to spend this last night with them, how he wraps up his ministry and his time with his disciples. Now, sometimes it's easy to forget that Christ wasn't a Christian. Uh, Now, he was obviously an important figure for Christianity. I hope you've heard of him by now. But he, he was raised in, in a Jewish context, and that's how he conducted his ministry. His parents were Jewish. The people around him were predominantly Jewish. Uh, and, and he was operating out of Jewish culture. That's why it's so important to this story and to us to remember that this is a Passover feast. Now, I don't know about you, but I hadn't heard just a whole lot about Passover growing up in the church. It was something that I knew existed because of stories in the Bible like this. Uh, but I hadn't heard much about it. And this past week in studying it, I was just fascinated with how much importance this meal that Jesus is having has around it just on its own. You see, for the Jewish people, it's actually one of the most important weeks of the year. Now, central to the Jewish identity is the Exodus. After being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, the Israelites were freed from Egypt after God performed these 10 miraculous acts to free them from their oppressors. And he led them out into the wilderness where he made a covenant with them and he promised that he would be their people, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so they entered into this covenant with him, promising that they would obey his laws, that they would do life his way. And the Passover Seder is a feast for Israelites to remember both of these important events, the Exodus and the covenant. And it's this meal that is the setting for Jesus' Last Supper. Now, I want to take you through just a few Passover highlights and some of the meanings behind them. Because everything at the Passover is symbolic, especially all of the foods. Now, the first half of the meal is meant to remind those eating it of the slavery in Egypt. Now, first thing, we have the bitter herbs. Uh, They'll eat these very, very bitter herbs that are tough to get down, usually horseradish today, and that is meant to symbolize their bitter struggle, their oppression, the harshness of their struggle and toil while they were in Egypt. Now, they also have something called kerosene. Now, kerosene is this sweet, uh, sticky kind of paste made out of nuts or fruit, and it's used to represent the mortar that the Israelites used while they were building up the storehouses in Egypt, brick by brick. And there are also vegetables that are dipped in salt water, and the salt water is meant to represent the tears of their ancestors as they suffered in Egypt. Now, it seems odd that they spend so much time dwelling on the fact that their people, their ancestors, their fathers and mothers were suffering We're slaves. But the Jewish people recognized that despite the pain, despite the suffering, that was a part of their identity, a part of their story, because they know that the story didn't end there. At the Seder, they also spend time dwelling on the theme of freedom. Throughout the meal, there are four cups of wine shared with those around the table. And they drink it while reclining to symbolize royalty and freedom. But far and away, the most important part of this meal is the lamb. This was the seal of the covenant to recall the blood of the young lamb that had been spread across the doorpost to save them from death in Egypt. 
all across Egypt, God's angel of death was working its way across the countryside, striking dead Egyptian boys. But because of the blood of the lamb covering their houses, the Israelites slept soundly in their beds, knowing they would be safe, knowing they were protected because of the blood of the lamb. Which, of course, leads to the spiritual implications. The lamb also recalls the atonement that they have through the sacrificial system. The blood of the lamb atones for their sins that have tried to pull them away from God, that have robbed them of being God's special people. The blood of the lamb atones for them and brings them back into this special relationship with God. The Passover meal is never just a meal. It's a declaration of freedom. It's their 4th of July picnic. It is a yearly celebration of this very tangible and very powerful freedom enacted by God himself. This is the meal that Jesus is having with his disciples. And he's going to take this meal and he's going to find a way to reinterpret it in light of his ministry. He's going to find a way for it to adopt a whole new meaning beyond the Jewish faith, beyond the exodus from Egypt so that it has very tangible and palpable effects for us today as we do it in remembrance of him. In fact, in chapter 9, you may remember from earlier the series, in the story of the transfiguration, Luke tells that Moses and Elijah, quote, appeared to talk about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's the word that Luke is using there. Luke sets the stage for how Jesus is going to be reinterpreting this event for his people for how we will remember how God saves his people. Jesus gave us his blood because we wouldn't need the blood of the lamb anymore. Jesus is the perfect lamb of God whose sacrifice has cleansed us of all of our sins. It is no longer an animal's blood that atones for us. It is Jesus's. By dying, Jesus gave us life. And Jesus also says that this is part of the new covenant, the one foretold by Jeremiah that Leland read for us today. The Jewish people are no longer under the old covenant, the one that said the Jews and the Jews alone were to be the special people set apart as long as they obeyed the laws that that God had set forth for them. Instead, Jesus is throwing the door wide open. The blood of the Lamb has cleansed us all, and all are invited to be a part of the kingdom of God. With the communion meal that we take, we get invited into this reality. When we eat the bread, when we take the cup, there's some unique connection that we find to Jesus. We aren't just remembering him. We are joining him around the table. And even more strangely, we are joining him in his death and his suffering, just like the Israelites do, just like the Jews do when they're remembering their ancestors being enslaved. We dwell on the pain that has led us to this point, the suffering that is now a part of our story. We celebrate the fact that we limped to the table. We dragged ourselves there. But we also celebrate the fact that we are there. We get to enjoy the triumph and freedom of Jesus' death and eventual resurrection. Instead of mourning our lives in captivity, we get to celebrate what was put to death alongside Jesus. 
We aren't enslaved by our addictions, our anxieties, or our shame. We aren't subject to the fear that tells us we might not be good enough or worthy of love. We aren't bound by what other people think we should be like or even what we ourselves think we should be like. We've put all these things to death along with our old selves. Jesus came to shine a light on phony freedom and say that this isn't right. And he came to give us a glimpse, just a taste of true, pure, unadulterated, bona fide freedom. At our church, we take communion every week. And my hope for you is that as you take communion, you will think of it as a chance to celebrate freedom. I know it's so easy to bring all the baggage of life with you into church. You're exhausted from work. You're stressed out about the bills. You're overwhelmed with self-doubt. You're struggling with an addiction, with anxiety, with mental illness, with guilt, with anger. And all of these things can feel a lot like being enslaved, even as you sit around the table. But communion provides a chance for you to poke your head above the weeds and to take stock of the spiritual reality all around us. No matter how you come to the table, beat up, bedraggled, burnt, I want you to leave with a firm reminder that you are set free. Now you've probably noticed something a little bit different on your tables in front of you this morning. We've decided to place the communion supplies on these red plates meant to reminisce, these, you are special plates. Scott recently told me about these, that uh, in families it's a tradition to place these plates uh, in front of uh, somebody celebrating a birthday. Uh, And on these plates, usually piled high with food uh, on the back, you write special memories. Um, I I had never heard of these plates, uh, which made me question what my parents were trying to communicate to me growing up. Um, So I had to to think back to these birthdays and, and wonder where my plate was. But as I got to thinking about some of the birthday traditions in my home, uh, I, I remembered that I got a sort of different kind of message. Every birthday I would get uh, my favorite meal, uh, probably the most complicated one to ever grace our kitchen. Uh, it was uh, an angel hair pasta with uh, grilled chicken sautéed with mushrooms and peas and spinach, and of course with this beautiful artery-clogging butter lemon dip. Um, We would also have uh, banana pudding, homemade, of course. Every birthday, our home would would be filled with the smells that were most dear to me, that that would communicate to me that this was my special day. Every single birthday, I got to be reminded that my parents thought I was special. I was worth doing this for. I didn't need some fancy plate. What I was missing is the meal is the message. When a meal is prepared specifically with care, it says much more than a simple plate or just a few words ever could. And it's this reality that I want to remind you of today. At the communion table, every meal is lovingly prepared by Jesus. And he's eagerly anticipated eating this meal with you. He's prepared a place for you with one of these plates set in front of you. Every Sunday at communion, Jesus sets one of these plates in front of you and he reminds you that you are special. That you 
were worth dying for. It's the meal that's the message. And all he wants at each communion meal is to give you just a little taste of true freedom. Let's pray together. God, we thank you today for the freedom that you bring. God, we're so grateful for your example of true freedom, spiritual freedom from all that has enslaved us. God, I pray today, whatever we are bringing to your table, whatever hurts, whatever anxieties, whatever has threatened to enslave us, I ask that we would hear nothing but a reminder of your love and your freedom. God, I ask that we appreciate every meal that you have prepared for us. Thank you for giving us this avenue for remembrance. Thank you for giving us your cup, your blood, your body. God, we thank you for your death and your resurrection that gives us life and gives us true freedom. It is in your holy name that we pray. Amen.